discourse, more like piss course. <laughs> Which is for Tom Hanks. What? Tom Hanks piss course. He pisses in every movie. Like, if you oh. want someone to piss in a movie, bring in Tom Hanks. You McGregor's always wanting to get his dick out in movies. I'm Justin. I'm a Skullcom librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Sadie. I'm a sysadmin at a public library, and my pronouns are she and they. I'm Jay. I'm an academic metadata librarian, and I use he, him pronouns. I'm Carrie. I'm a health sciences librarian, and I'm she, her. And we have a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Cheney Austin. Um, I guess officially I'm a doctor. My pronouns are they, them. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, I've got too many drops. Wait. Jeannie, Dr. Jeannie, if I may, (laughs) thanks so much for coming on. So we've been trying to do this series about library services and incarcerated people and prison librarianship and just the back and forth. So I was introduced to your work via the Abolitionist Library Association. We were talking in a meeting about information services in the subcommittee. And uh, your name came up, and I believe they were trying to get you to do a presentation. And so I thought, well, this is obviously information people want to hear if they're interested in, in library services for incarcerated people. So I thought, yeah, I'll just get them on the podcast, and that'll be great. And here you are. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. To prepare for today's episode, we went through a couple of your articles. I really only had time to go through one because I was busy decompressing with lots of weed and park rangers and um alligators and then i saw callers mencia which was really weird oh the mind thereof yeah he's like still touring and being a person and stealing jokes he stole (laughs) he fucking stole the opener's joke he said the exact same joke as the opener he's still stealing jokes sorry um (laughs) i was like did did i just stroke out did that really happen I yeah, he was like called out on it too. Wow, that like, dude learned like nothing a thing for a while. That was a long time ago. I mean, of all yeah. the reasons to get canceled as a comedian these days, that's really not the worst one. Like everyone's done it. Yeah, it's fine. Um, but yeah, my friend works at a club that tends to uh, have people who um, need to work up some new material because they don't want to be in public. Public. You mean like Carlos Mencia? Yeah. So anyway. Uh, so I didn't get to finish reading the second article, but I really did like the first one, which is systemic oppression and a contested ground of information access for incarcerated people. Uh, I will, of course, put all of these in the show notes for everyone to check out. Um, but the main point of the article is information. And what we're here to talk about today is information services for incarcerated people and the ways that those get limited. 
and just as a way of introduction, it takes on many forms through many policies, both formal and informal. However, it's not doesn't seem to be very strongly informed by library practices. It's mostly focused on carceral policies centered on quote unquote safety and mailroom policies, which of course has implications for contact with the outside world, which is important. So we'll discuss all those issues and hopefully come to some action-oriented outcomes. Sound good to everybody? Well, I mean, not really, but um, <laughs> I read the article and it, it was, um, you know, like this is something I've been working on a little bit too, kind of canonically. Also, I don't know if you remember me, we used to party together in grad school, Jeannie. <laughs> <laughs> And I think you were around when I was in the canoe accident with uh, Sarah Roberts. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, just thought I'd bring that up real quick, see if you remembered. But yeah, I've been following your work a lot too, which has been really great. And I'm really glad you've been working on this stuff. And I was really gra- glad you brought up the Wisconsin stuff about role-playing games, about how mm-hmm. they've banned both Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, and anything having to do with role-playing and things like that because they say it inspires gang-related activity because Dungeons and Dragon was actually invented in the state of Wisconsin too, which is the grand irony of that as well, which I was really, really pleased you highlighted that because a lot of times, especially even when you go through like the basic list of like commonly banned prison books and state-by-state things, Wisconsin often gets overlooked because there's no like big blanket policy on certain types of material, but they have a list by list. They have like a master Excel list, which you went through. And I really appreciated the attention to detail on that because I went through that recently because I'm working on a mutual aid project potentially on some stuff. And I wanted to make sure that like that would be kosher. And I've done some Wisconsin books to prisoner stuff with work before. And like, yeah, that list is fucked up. <laughs> and I was really glad that that was highlighted in this article. So yeah, anyway. No role-playing in Wisconsin prisons. Yeah, it feels like a very 90s kind of, or like 80s panic of Satanism or something kind of rule, right? But it's also a little odd because if you listen to podcasts coming out of prison like Ear Hustle, when people talk about Magic the Gathering or Dungeons and Dragons, they talk about those spaces as one of the few kind of interracial spaces that can exist in a prison without there being a lot of tension, which is not historically how people have defined gangs by any means, you know. So you can wonder what are the implications of banning those kinds of materials that allow people to come together and share a, something that is creative and world building. I, I wanna say too, I wrote this article with mostly books to prisoners people. And in part because library science has not attended very much to people who are incarcerated or library services and incarceration books to prisoners people are the default. They're the people who know the most actually about what information access, or some of the people who know the most about what information access is actually like for people who are incarcerated. And they're often the people who are leading public campaigns around what's happening. You know, they're the people who will suddenly experience like every book that I send into this prison is getting sent back. And so they have an idea of it also at scale. And I'm really thankful that so many books to prisoners people wanted to write with me because they were bringing that kind of like area, region, state level expertise to the article. Yeah, that seems to be the theme I was hearing in, in ABLA meetings. And so I was like, we have got to get some people in to talk about books to prisoners. And so this definitely isn't the last one we're going to do on this topic, but I would love to get some books to prisoners people on as well. 
I think this was a good way to open um, because you opened your article with it, which is mailroom policies and censorship. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about the New York Department of Corrections and, and what they were trying to do in 2018? Yeah, it's been a while since I've thought about this. But basically, and this is not specific just to New York, but there was a big campaign around it in New York. I believe the first step was that they tried to say, we're getting tablets in the prisons. And so now everything's going to be through tablets and there won't be access to any physical books anymore. Under the security minded notion that books presented a security threat um, or a way for contraband to get in. And then there was public pushback. And instead, New York said, "Okay, we're going to allow books, but people can only buy books from these specific vendors. And I think it's important for people who don't have any kind of background knowledge about getting books in prison. Most people can only receive brand new books. Some prisons do a kind of restriction that is like you can only have soft cover books inside. So that means anything that's coming out that's new and very popular probably won't be able to get in. Even things like underlining on a page can be viewed as a security threat because it could be coded communication. And so already, I mean, that's, those are just a few kinds of restrictions that are pretty across the board. And that means information access is already just limited by basic policy. But then to say like only these specific vendors, often what happens is it's a vendor who might have some popular titles and then a religious materials vendor. And that is like, I mean, if you think about how we get books right now and all of the ways and the options that we have just to access information, if you had to say, just like go to a Barnes and Noble and you could only get what was at the Barnes and Noble. You know, it might feel like a lot of selection, but if you if your only range of knowing about what's out there is what's at Barnes and Noble, then you have no idea what information you can't even have access to. Yeah. So this was outlined as one of the two types of bands that work together. So um, the one you just described is restricting outlets, which is uh, you described as content neutral mm. from approved vendors. And then there's content-based. So that's usually for sexual or violent content. And we talked about this with Rebecca on our first episode about this. And she mentioned, you know, reputable vendors had to be used, but family could still provide new books. And you could also for a while get them through Amazon until the, the receipts went away. And the way she was describing it, it sounded very, very nebulous and just kind of up to the warehouse people. And so... I, I think that came across in your article, but did you want to talk about that nebulousness, that sort of arbitrariness? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I'll talk about this both with mail and books, and then I'm going to talk about Pennsylvania a little bit too, because they have implemented a model that I think is likely other states and maybe even the Federal Bureau of Prisons is going to follow. So a lot of things, times things are banned under that big <laughs> umbrella, right, of like sexual or violent content. But that tends to be really racialized. Actually, until this week, last week, I had never heard of a James Patterson book being banned by a prison. And this is kind of a historic or a, a stake post, how do you say that, phrase that Aaron Boyington, who's been a prison librarian for a long time in Colorado or worked with incarcerated people, made this point of like, you can have a James Patterson book, but you can't have an urban fiction book. And what, what's the difference between the two? And the difference is pretty obvious. It's that urban fiction is written for a Black audience and with Black vernacular. But for the most part, content-wise, they're the same. Also, how prisons and facilities define sexuality and something being pornographic varies a lot. So one of the things in the article we talk about specifically is 
materials around trans being being trans. And there have been bans on books like Trans Bodies, Trans Selves, which is a health guide for trans people. In Washington, there was one where people were told that having access to the book, if they had access to the book, they were creating a security threat for themselves because people would know that they were trans because they had access to the book. As though there was no other way that people who were around someone 23 hours a day would know that they were trans or that a person could be claiming a trans identity publicly in prison. I've talked to librarians who have had to do things like black out the covers of books because they showed a certain amount of cleavage or a certain amount of somebody's ass. And so the only way to have the books inside was to be physically doing like old school, like FBI document censoring of them. It's also that, that, that banning for gang is really common or special threat group banning is that's like a broad term for gangs, but that does tend to encompass things like Black political history or revolutionary thought or critiques of the prison. I'm sure you all have seen the bands around Miriam Kaba's new book, which is all essays that were published in like reputable sources. You know, it's not just like somebody talking. And so these things, it's like, it just is such a, it's hard to conceptualize if you don't experience it, it, I think, how constrained the information environment is, and especially this kind of like whitewashing that occurs either by either intentionally or not. I mean, I think there's some level of intention in it, but it's not necessarily explicit. And often it's actually kind of couched under these other categories. Yeah, there was, um, it's really like the the next thing I had on the, the notes list, which was, you know, LGBT incarceration rates, which are extremely high, especially for black trans women. Mm-hmm. And then the, the mailroom policies... Aside from trans bodies, trans selves, which is, you know, like health, regular health information that you would need to know, it also stops a connection with the trans community outside. And it seems to be, that seemed to be a big point of your article was how important it is to remain connected and how these information policies stop that connection. So I'm, I'm hoping that people who listen to this will kind of get why we're so concerned about book bans in prisons. Right. Yeah. And in my, I mean, on that topic, I have a book that's coming out about library services and incarceration, maybe this month. And one of the things I point to, because I think it is so important to look at who is actually doing this work if library and information science people aren't doing it. I think it's TGIJP, Transgender Intersex Justice Project, has this guide that they distribute to trans people inside who are members of their network that is written by trans women who were incarcerated and is about surviving incarceration as a trans woman. And the reason that I point to that is not only because it's this incredible, you know, act of production and information sharing and care that's crossing walls, but is also what are the limitations of not only librarianship, but of traditional publishing. Like it's hard to imagine that the guide, if you read it, would ever have been put to get published by a traditional publisher. Or that it's almost hard to imagine prisons actually letting the information out and in because it's so factual (laughs) about the lived realities of being a trans woman who is incarcerated in men's prisons. You know, things like you need to find somebody that is like looking out for you and maybe you're doing sex work for that person so that you have this kind of protection. And it's, yeah, I think it's really powerful to look to those networks and to 
really attend to information that people who are incarcerated are producing because they're often sharing that information at great risk to themselves. And there's, there's actually, there's been a few situations where people have been told that they can't publish if they're incarcerated because they're not allowed to make money. That's usually the justification. Or even Willie Lamb was a person who was doing a lot of like prison writing stuff. And there's some critique, I think, of him out there. But he had published a book with incarcerated writers. And they were t- the women who contributed were told by the prison system, they fought it eventually, that they had to pay for each day of their incarceration because they had broken a rule by publishing to the tune of thousands and thousands of dollars. That ultimately didn't happen. But that's the kind of pressure that they were under just for sharing information. Could you talk a little bit more, actually, about how people are publishing in prison? Uh, I guess particularly trans people would be really interesting to know, like, what what are some difficulties they're coming up against? Because I, I follow some prison journalists, and they were saying, you know, oh, the secure, the secure pads just updated, and I can't save my drafts anymore, and I can't get anything out. And luckily, I think that got fixed. A small victory. But yeah, could you talk a little bit about, a little bit more about publishing on the inside? Yeah, I'll say I don't know a ton about it, though I do know some people who are incarcerated who have published while they've been incarcerated. But every step of the way, I mean, so let's say somebody's going a traditional route, unless they're connected to a group like PEN America, which has an incarcerated writers program that, and they put out a free guide that people who are incarcerated can get about how do you write? How do you publish? It's really difficult to understand everything about publishing, even for people who have gone in recently, for people who have been inside for decades, right? There's this whole barrier of understanding how we access information at all. And also finding an agent. How do you find a publisher? How do you know how to write in a genre? Many people who are incarcerated are writing. Another restriction might be limits on the amount of pieces of paper that can be in an envelope. I said I was going to talk about Pennsylvania, so I'll go back to it now and its model. The Pennsylvania DOC, a few years ago, there was a spate of COs who got really sick And the prison said officially that it was like a fentanyl kind of trafficking thing from the mail. And there's some, (laughs) some people have contested that maybe you can't get sick from a fentanyl exposure that is minimal, but the prison used this, the prison system in the entire state used this as justification to shut down all communications that weren't legal and all access to information for several months. And then What they did in that interim period of time was due to pushback from groups like Books to Prisoners groups, they set up a central processing center in the state where people have to send the books and the books are all searched and screened. And search and screen processes differ by facilities for sure. So these are probably going through a metal detector and they probably have canine units or something there. And then they contracted with this company called Smart Communications, which bills itself how to describe it when it's billing itself to police it bills itself as or to prison officials as an ability to have a comprehensive searchable database of all communications that have gone into the prison and so when smart communications is located in florida and the way it works is that people write to the address in florida their letters are scanned and digitized and searched by ai made searchable And then that scan is forwarded electronically to a prison in Pennsylvania, where a CO either prints it out or a person has access to it as a digital scan on a kiosk or a tablet. What people are saying who receive the scans is that they're really shitty. It's difficult to read the materials. And often things don't get allowed in the scan that would have come through the physical mail. And beyond that, the scans end at typically like 10 pages. 
So if somebody has written a letter longer than that, it's just the end of it. It's just gone. So you can imagine the reverse also process of getting information out given that kind of restriction, which if you're writing, like if you're writing a book and it's 200 handwritten pages, unless you have access to a typewriter, or if you're writing it on a tablet where you can save, you're paying, there's restrictions on the amount of words that can be in each email and all of it, there's some form of payment that's happening. It's really, really difficult, let's say, to get any kind of information out in those circumstances. People do it. People find all kinds of ways to do it. But I mean, prison TikTok exists, you know, but just considering all of those barriers, it's so incredible that people do get their work out. And I don't, I don't know if you all have heard about this book, Marking Time. It's awesome. And it's all about incarcerated artists, just to take a little bit of a turn. It's Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration by Nicole Fleetwood. And part of the book is talking about like, how do people get their art supplies in? And there's all kinds of clandestine ways that people are getting access to art supplies. You know, things like certain colors are prohibited in prison. So you can't get a paint that is that color. You can't get phantom black. <laughs> I think it tends to be like colors that are the colors of people's clothing, colors that are supposedly affiliated with gangs and colors that are used to mark areas that are only for COs to go into. But then there's several artists in the book who are not only making like there's an artist who's making 3D sculptures and is smuggling his sculptures out the entire time that he's incarcerated at times with help from COs. You know, so these I think it's important to say like there are these major major barriers but not to think of prison walls as never being porous, not for reasons that are like even necessarily illegal. But because if we think about the wall as a hard and fast line, then we don't imagine ourselves as able to share information across it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, more, it's the same thing. The, if you want to sell drugs, you go to prison. If you want to traffic drugs, you become a cop. I mean, that's, that's, how you, that's how you go big time. I live on the border, man. Our whole like police department for, for drugs, they were all huge cocaine dealers like, like three years ago. So like the whole thing had to be cleared out. Yeah. And there's research that shows, I mean, to go back to like the clandestine cell phone, right? Mm-hmm. Or prison TikTok, that the reason most people are getting, most likely the reason that most people are trying to get cell phones when they're incarcerated is actually, it's just too expensive to talk on the prison phone. Mm-hmm. It's not about not being surveilled. And it's mostly COs that are bringing the phones in because how else would the phones get in? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had mentioned I think last time there was a there's a guy I followed who was incarcerated for a while and he was just, you know, tweeting about his experience and every once in a while he would say, Hey, here's my sister's Venmo, send me some money, I'm getting out soon. And uh if you follow someone like that, do give them money, man. It they bleed them dry at every turn. So, you know, it's not it's now is not the time to get self righteous about the how you spend your money. So you said the Pennsylvania system might go national. Is this with the whole scanning and sending that the whole Department of Corrections, DOJ, might do this? Yeah, I haven't looked it up recently, but the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which is the largest prison system in the U.S., um, they tend to be like high-level drug trafficking or crossing state lines while committing a felony. People end up in federal prison. And, Unless they're cops. <laughs> um, but they were considering smart communications as a vendor. And I don't, I haven't checked in the last month or so to see if they finalized that decision. Okay. And I, I recently heard too, North Carolina is going with a different vendor that's doing a similar thing. Um, just a funny kind of smart communication story, if I may. Sure. Is they, 
I can't remember what it was, but they did like a demo of their service at some local jail in the upper Midwest. And then the jail didn't contract with them, but people who worked for the jail created a similar system. (laughs) And then smart communications just sued the pants off of them because they want to be the only company, I guess, that is providing this kind of service in quotes. So I wonder with this new North Carolina service program company if smart communications is going to come after them they seem really really aggressive so so, sort of speaking of like this program maybe going at like a federal level in federal prisons i was unless there's um more you want to keep saying on that it's making me wonder what are the differences between like information services and getting information in and out and library services in like federal or public prisons versus like for-profit prisons like what kind of differences are there or is it basically a meaningless distinction at this point yeah it's uh it's difficult so it's easy to say like you have a jail you have a juvenile detention center you have a prison in a state you have a federal prison you have an ice facility but actually a lot of local jails have like three cells that are reserved for ICE. And there's all of this kind of like intertwinedness of what seemed like they'd be distinct institutions. So I've actually been meaning to look more into federal. I think that there are some here, let's say here's information that's important. Everyone is legally entitled as determined by the state to have access to religious information and meaningful access to the courts. So that means that most facilities will have a room full of law books. That's typically how that gets interpreted. Some might have people who are trained as legal librarians. My experience talking to prison librarians is most of them do not have a background in legal librarianship, although that ends up being the majority of their work, unless there is a legal library and a recreational library. State prisons are, in my experience, more likely to have a recreational library, but they don't always have one. And in some states, What that means is that there's one person who has an MLIS who advises on library services for like 10 prisons and does not necessarily work inside of any of them. Maybe does collection development or does some like training for people who are incarcerated workers in the library. And But some systems like Washington State, their library services for the state are part of their state library's work. And so they run their, they run prison libraries like little branches inside of the prisons. And they're doing really cool stuff. Like they're connecting with public libraries throughout the state of Washington to help people get library cards for their public library when they're getting released. So they can go out and they have an immediate like warm handoff to a public library. Even good services are limited by things like, is there enough staffing or staff who want to make sure that people are getting access to the library? Is there a lockdown? You know, for COVID, it's been lockdown conditions across the U.S. for for a lot of people they didn't leave their cell for more than an hour a day for over a year, a year and a half. And so library services were running like through the interprison mail, like as kites, people would put a request in and then the librarian would copy something and send it back. In jails, because people have this idea that jails are short-term facilities and ostensibly they are. So supposedly people are in jail for like a year. And then if people are sentenced to more than a year, they're sentenced to prison. But so that means that jails typically aren't infrastructurally created to have the kinds of resources that a prison would have. Like they don't have a library. They don't necessarily have education programming. They don't necessarily have all of this other stuff that, and like not to be like prison is necessarily better than jail, but these are just some of the differences. But in reality, people in jail 
can be there for a really long time as they're fighting their cases or going through the entire court process. So people might be in for up to a decade, you know, and there's a difference between like, if think about just regular or not regular, but think about library services on the outside and how, if you knew that you were going to have a new group of patrons, like as a teen librarian, every set of years, you would do a different kind of collection development than if you have people who are going to be your library patrons for a really, really long time, because they're going to read every book that you have in your library. And especially libraries inside, if people are dedicated readers, literally will potentially read every book that's available in the library. So to be in a jail for 10 years can mean also that it's a different information world than people who are like passing through. And federal, yeah, federal, I've been trying to find out more about, I think a few years ago, and this is not quotable because I can't back it up with fact, but there was a turnover towards the kind of like education media specialist instead of librarians in federal outside of the meaningful access to the law. I haven't confirmed that. I did recently learn of a private prison with a librarian, which felt shocking, (laughs) Um, but I've only heard of one. There are significantly less private prisons than there were a year and a half ago. And so that is also notable. And ICE facilities are like, the dedicated ICE facilities, people are like having riots because they can't get access to legal information in the language that they read or speak. And there's like two articles about information access and ICE facilities that I've seen. And they're both just like, there is no information. (laughs) Like it's not here. How can you justify it? So I really... It's possible that there's a librarian somewhere in one of them, but I kind of doubt that there is. No, not unless they're they're in um, a state facility, which in Texas, a lot of the uh, current asylum seekers are getting funneled upstate into a prison system um, because we ran out of ice spaces in the jails in the valley. So um, there was a massive migration of asylum seekers who are, uh, have committed no crime but just have nowhere else to be held as if they need to be held. Yeah. And I've seen these, I've flown out. I've seen these people on airplanes. You, you, you can't look at someone in the face who's holding a packet with like all the information they've ever been given. And on the front, it says, I don't speak English, please help. And like, that's all they give them. And they put them on a plane and you know, they're just sitting there going, it's terrifying. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's awful. And I do want to say Reforma has a group called Children in Crisis that is doing some support for kids who are crossing the border and are being basically incarcerated. So they work with different community groups along the border to donate children's books that are in Spanish. And it's all, it's a crowdfunded project, I guess is how you would describe it. So if you all are looking for other places to put, I'm sure your copious amounts of library and money, there's one. Um, <laughs> But they're really... We have so much of it. <laughs> <laughs> they're really cha-ching, amazing. And... Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> um, and they've worked with groups even to meet people at like bus stops, like the bus stops where people are getting mm-hmm. dropped after they're being taken out of as the centers so that when the kid's first experience is not just being completely isolated and stuck, but is like being acknowledged and given a book. Yeah, it's usually you're dropped outside in in my town. You're usually dropped outside Catholic charities unless you have to do a mm-hmm. PCR test first in like a field, um, and then you're you're in Catholic charities for about a day or two before, before you uh, get on a bus to wherever you're going. So I don't know if there's a program like that, but I should check. 
obviously at the end, we'll do a roundup of, of places that can definitely deserve people's money. And I'll put it all in the notes. And I'm, I'm going to start in, incorporating, continuing my tradition of the discourse task tax, which is whenever people spend all day like dunking on someone for a library thing, I said, okay, you've all had your fun. Now you got to give $5 to this charity for discoursing on Twitter all day. So I'm going to maintain the discourse tax. So I'll, I'll do like books to prisoners for the next one. I like that idea. A discourse yeah. tax. Like, it's like a square yeah. jar, but yeah. good. I'm just like fucking were... sick of seeing this tweet all day. Yeah. So now if you retweet about it, you got to pay five bucks. Yeah. You were dumb fucking engaged. Do, <laughs> do your thing and give back. Like if you posted about banned books week, you have to donate money to books for prisoners. Like you are legally obligated. We'll put you in jail if you don't. I, that shit pisses, <laughs> I fucking hate banned books week for that reason alone. Like the fact that they ignore all of the prison uh, and like carceral uh, banning during banned books week is the biggest thorn in my side. So that's like my only that's my number one banned books tweet. That's that's the one tweet that I get on banned books week. That was actually something I wanted to ask you, Jeannie, which is how involved do we want the ALA to be in like, uh, you know, tying Banned Books Week uh, into. Oh, the big question. Yeah, man. I'm fucking asking the profound. Um, well, I just spent, <laughs> I'm going to start this way. I just spent a week in the ALA archive actually digitizing. I was trying to digitize a bunch of stuff about libraries and incarceration because I am interested, right? Like, how do we think about, it's, I think it's really important that we see ourselves, people who are doing this work or are interested in this work in a historical tradition of librarians that have done it. We're not necessarily inventing anything. And actually the work has looked really the same <laughs> for a really long time. So if anything, it's like become since this in the seventies, there was, you know, this huge activist push both from incarcerated people and people on the outside, including librarians that led to things like meaningful access to the courts and in the 60s. And that's really important. If anything, since then, information access has gotten more restricted. And there's been kind of this like chipping away at what qualifies as meaningful access to the court or what information people can have and what their information rights are. ALA can be an advocacy organization and has in the past been one to advocate for things like in the 70s, there was probably the most, my take at least, is there was the most library service for people who were incarcerated of any recent decade. And part of that was because of things like ALA advocacy for federal funds to support prison libraries. Like in the 70s, I think every juvenile detention center in Illinois and every prison had a librarian, which has not been my experience as a librarian who's been doing academic work around this for over a decade. So things like that are important, right? And organizations can push for that. I also, one of the things I walked away from over that week from the archive is there's kind of my like inspirational thing and I put links up to it on my website and I steal their imagery and whatever is this newsletter that was called Inside Outside. And it's written by incarcerated people and librarians. And it's very, it's like a very critical document as many documents in that period were. But 
it's things like how do like is this a good legal guide or like fuck the government or like Eugene Debs quote or you know hands pulling bars apart and I had up until this week always seen that as something that was separate from the archive and kind of like tracing the lives of different people through these records that I can find and when I was looking through the archives in the 70s there were several mentions of inside outside none of them descriptive, but it was obvious that this tool being created outside of ALA was also facilitating some of the advocacy work that ALA was doing, right? And maybe could not ever be engaged with because it has certain <laughs> parameters of what it is and what it is not. And a base of librarians that maybe don't all agree that there should be library services for incarcerated people, and especially don't agree on what those should look like. <laughs> If you are, I will say in this moment, this is important. If you get American libraries somehow around you, please read the essays that Tracy D. Hall, who is the new executive director of ALA, is writing because she is really passionate about this work and about social justice and about the possibilities that exist for ALA as an institution to really make change. And she's writing about incarceration, you know, the school to prison pipeline. She wrote one of her essays was what if we had a different model for how we're funding libraries and redistributed all of the tax-based monies that are district across the state in a way that was more equitable so that no matter where you were, you were getting library services that were quality and weren't influenced by the poverty of the area that you're in, which is so obvious, right? <laughs> but until I read that essay, I had never even considered that as a funding model that especially ALA would pursue. So I, I do hope that we are in a hinge moment. And I think that there will be change, hopefully from ALA, but there will also be change from this generation of librarians and library students that are coming up. Like I said, I've been doing this work for a long time, and it's only in the last couple of years that there's been widespread interest in this topic. Like, no one would have asked me to be on a podcast five years ago. So thank you. We didn't have podcasts I was going to say something like, oh, wow, ALA is doing something surprisingly good. Thanks, Tracy Hall. Like, that's pretty cool, though. Um, it's always nice when, like, something good happens. Like, it's a nice surprise. Like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> um, thanks for looking out. So that's cool that you've been digging through that. And, like, I, I think I read about the mention of Inside Out in one of the articles, or Inside Outside in one of the articles. So that's pretty cool, too. This is actually a pretty, one of those like weird like life coincidences where it's like, oh, that's very prescient that, that we're talking about this. So I really like the fact that you're putting this in like a historical context and like looking back to see like, okay, what has this looked like and not just now? Like what have we done in the past? What's worked and what's hasn't? And sort of, I also see in the notes like, you know, is getting ALA involved, like, do we want that? Like, is that, like, reifying this system? And I know that's, like, the classic, like, abolition versus reform. And that's a, always been, like, a, you know, that's a, a very historical argument. And because I'm very gay, yesterday I spent the day um, reading um, this book about Oscar Wilde and, like, anarchist philosophy. You know, he wrote Soul Man Under Socialism, but also wrote, like, Ballad of Reading Jail, and which has been used in a lot of abolitionist writing, actually. And what I found, because there's a whole chapter of the book talking about um, his incarceration, and reading that was, like, 
breaking my heart. It was disgusting. And people went back to Reading Jail in the 80s, and it was the same, if not worse, than when Wilde was there, which is, you know, not surprising, but depressing as hell. And one of the things it talked about was that, like, before he, um, because he was in several jails during his, his hard labor. And before that, he was very much, like an abolitionist like he very much agreed and especially like wrote in sold man under socialism that like by by trying to reform something you are validating its existence and that like you just you need to get rid of it entirely and then after he got out of prison he actually was more for reform but like in a lot of ways it was sort of like in his letters while he was in like while he was incarcerated and he was like trying to, you know, appeal to be released. The first thing he would say was like, this whole institution sucks and it's doing all of these things to me. Please let me out. (laughs) Um, As if he thought that would work. Um, But when he got out, he was like one of the leading voices of reform and actually like some of his reforms got put into place apparently and most of them like were obviously about like health and stuff because he was getting so ill he almost died in in prison because they just didn't believe him and stuff but a lot of it actually to do with information services um it was like making sure people had access to books that people could write and had access to pen and paper and that people could send letters out and receive letters in and i think his thing was like at least once a month and um children were also incarcerated with the adults at this time so it was like making sure that the kids had books they could read too like he actually sort of did like librarian work while in prison after um the warden at his place got replaced and was actually kinder and so yeah and a lot of these reforms he talks about like this shouldn't exist and we shouldn't be doing this but if we have to right now in the meantime like the way he talked about reform was very much like the way that we talk about socialism where it's like this isn't the end goal but while we're working on the end goal let's make something better and so i think this discussion of like do we get the ala involved is us doing this work validating this this system i i don't know just like especially you doing all of this historical work on it 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 seems like it's just like always been such a important aspect of abolition work and such a concern for the mental and even physical well-being of people who um are incarcerated yeah i just to summarize maybe do we do we approach this in a a framework of harm reduction uh, or is that a bad framework to look at information services for for incarcerated people? I mean, I'll say my personal approach is to be concerned with the people who are currently incarcerated, to do whatever is possible to create information access, because with the circumstances as they are, we can't even imagine what that might, what kind of change might happen just with basic access to information. And I think it's very important to remember in conversations about incarceration that we're talking about nearly 2 million people because of a slight drop in how many people it is uh, at any given time in the United States who are incarcerated, who are connected to people on the outside in so many different ways and who are complex human beings who might not even be allowed to make a basic choice like what book do I get to read and what information do I want to have access to. 
And I, there are so many ramifications of the situation that we are in right now that are unexplored and undiscussed that could lead to in so many different directions. You know, while there are a lot of people who are sentenced to life or virtual life, and I believe that they deserve access to information also, there are also a lot of people who are going to come back out of prison. And because of this kind of deprivation are forced into, this is like, I, saying systemic oppression is a very academic language, right? But this is the reality of what it is, how how this kind of curtailing of access to information is a form of systemic oppression that is state enforced. It's a form of state violence that creates systems that are just circular, that whirlwind people, more and more and more people into carceral facilities and to experiences that are completely shaped by incarceration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimately, I mean, it is a pragmatic approach. And we get caught up in the academic language of it. So, no. Thank you for grounding that. That's uh, very important. Yeah. And people can disagree with me, too, on it, you know. But it's just, that's that's just the approach that I've taken. Yeah. I mean, the most important thing is to give a shit. Um, everything else seems to follow afterwards. Yeah. And I think if people are concerned about incarceration in any way, not necessarily abolitionist or necessarily even from a political perspective, but just have a feeling about it then it's important to try as you can to connect with people who are actually incarcerated. So maybe even just get a pen pal, you know, there's like black and pink has a pen pal network for LGBTQ people inside to write to people outside. And they always have a wait list. Yeah. I've been thinking, I just found this is, this is something with ALA in the archive. I found one letter from a woman who I'm not going to share her name because it's not my business. But it's from the early 90s, so when mass incarceration is like ramping up, and she's sentenced to life. She's still inside now. And it's a letter where she says, you know, having access to books is one of the most valuable things that I have. Please don't forget us as you are doing your work. And I think, what would it, how would it change our field if we saw that kind of testimony from people who are incarcerated about the value of accessing information? Also on my to-do list is to write to her and tell her I found your letter 30 years later in this archive Um, and maybe ask for permission to share it because it just is, I was like, when you look at LIS and the history of LIS, there isn't a lot of information from people who have been incarcerated or formerly incarcerated who are claiming that experience publicly. There's so many reasons not to, right? But I think we could really benefit from it instead of making assumptions about what it is that people want or need. Yeah. I, I've really been toying with this idea of, you know, if I, if I could get in contact with someone who is a formerly incarcerated library worker, but I've got to weigh the ethics on that in terms of, uh, do I want to find someone like that, reach out to someone like that? But if someone like that does yeah. hear about this episode and wants to talk about their experience, I mean, um, obviously get in touch, but. And Eldon Ray James, he goes by Ray. Um, is he he claims that publicly he was in federal for i think over a decade and he's librarian now he actually he wrote an article recently about tablets charging people to read by the minute so people were getting charged five cents a minute to read a book which meant like twenty dollars to read 1984 that's what he brings up in his article but that's like a month's wages for an incarcerated person Mm -hmm. and because of his work and advocacy ala passed a resolution against charging people to read on the or by the minute to read which is one of the first kind of signpost activities that ALA has done around incarceration in a really long time. And like, you would think that that would be just like a no brainer. 
like, you know, you're the American Library Association, you should say, hey, maybe charging people to read is a bad idea. But then again, there are lots of libraries that are just now considering getting rid of overdue fines. So that's part of the whole structure. But yeah, the I've heard about the tablets and I didn't know that you were charged to read by minute. That's ludicrous. Yeah, that's not all of them are that way. But definitely. And they're like, if we can squeeze a penny out of any activity on this tablet, it will most likely get squeezed. Well, it's like I've read up on like the stamp markup in prisons, like if for sending mail and stuff, especially for photo delivery and things like that, that's really fucked up too. <laughs> um, I mean, everything is just marked up insanely. And then with prison wages on top of that being so just sub subterraneanly low, I wanted to say astronomically low, but that's not how astronomic works. Like it's subterranean low, but also I think to follow up on that. So like ALA passes these resolutions, what kind of grounding does that have in, you know, making sure that people have access to read in, in, in carceral environments, like in read freely. And that's, that goes back to the question of reforms, right? Is like, if people are not allowed, if there's no oversight, of what is being implemented inside, then how how can anyone be sure that it's actually happening unless people who are incarcerated are able to share that information out? And that that's a real issue, is what I'll say. And also if we're not pushing against like, you know, the institutions that are trying to pull this shit off, essentially who who watches and that's it's it's i guess that's part of it too sorry no yeah and even and especially in this like move to tech there's this book by shoshana magnet i'm looking at it now called when biometrics fail and there's a chapter on it that's about it's probably one of the earliest things written about technologies in prisons it's about the history of biometric development in prisons Things like iris scanners were used in prisons for a long time. People outside don't want to use them because they are weird and uncomfortable and you put your eye up on something. But people in prison have to use them. And so that's how they got refined was through their use in prisons. But one of the points that she makes in that chapter is about how as the technologies come in, people are less and less witnessed in as like a, a whole being in a whole set of circumstances. And I think, I mean, I, I just made this point at a conference the other day that Part of this is not just the institution, you know, part of it is us as a society, like people do volunteer and do work and do programming both inside of jails and prisons and juvenile detention centers and from outside. It's just that the volume of people that are doing that is not very high. (laughs) And that is a reflection back on, and there are people who are deeply traumatized in many ways by the judicial system. So I don't want to say like, this is an across the board implication of us as a society, but is in many ways an implication that goes beyond our field, right? And there are programs, like reference by mail programs send in hundreds of letters to people in prison every month across the US. I think there's like seven or eight of them now who are serving statewide prison populations. And most of them don't have a high rate of rejection for what they're sending in as long as it's within like prison mailroom rules, which are things like not a map, not how to make weapons, not explicit materials that you wouldn't get from a library anyway, because it would constitute sexual harassment, you know, and no hate materials. However, whoever is responding or who's working in a mailroom interprets that. But if, if that was standard library procedure to answer letters from people who are incarcerated, then there would be so much more information that's going in. And if more people were thinking like, oh, people who are incarcerated are 
are people are part of my community or part of my patron base, then this would be also a really different set of circumstances. Yeah, uh, I believe there are some volunteer reference for prisoner services, the big ones in New York, right? Um, I'm blanking on their name right now. Yeah, PSLN, the uh, or PLSN, sorry, Prison Library Support Network. Yeah, I think it's a great model. I'd like to learn more about it. Their their website was having issues last time I looked at it, so hopefully I can I can follow up and maybe get some more information from them. So we're at an hour. I want to help wrap up. We've really already hit a lot of the action oriented uh, questions, which is great. I'm glad that we've really given people something to work with. Is there anything in particular you want people to know that they should be supporting so that way we can just rattle off a few and throw on the notes and hopefully send some dollars their way? Um, yeah. Books to prisoners are everywhere. They're amazing. It is not difficult to work with them. <laughs> if you don't have any time to spare at all, you can donate materials. And money. I'd also suggest they make a great, if you have a library that wants to, like my library, I organized a books to prisoners project with my library. And uh, it's a great way to get your staff involved and get them aware of carceral libraries and their needs. So also something you can do within your library as programming. So another idea. So we should do a whole episode on how you did that. It wasn't that hard. And like, I actually have another haul to give to them right now too. <laughs> um, and I'm, potentially trying to do a mutual aid project with libraries to prisoners and like you can actually you know other people do stuff where like you can put together book sets with them too like they have like i know in wisconsin we have a really good program where like you can uh they have wish lists and stuff that you can do and go through too and if you're an lis student listening it's a really good project to get involved with while you're a student as well i mean if you're at uiuc uh, i hope it's still happening there but at that cool independent media center they normally have books to prisoners like meetings um and you can just like show up and help and i think it's like every week maybe multiple times a week i would go on saturday mornings where you get to help like respond to letters and stuff so i i hope there are other programs like that near other library schools but yeah las students if you're listening definitely try to get involved with them it's a good thing to do while you're in school yeah and if you are interested in writing only to women there's um Chicago Books for Women in Prison, and trying to remember how the LGBT, it's only LGBT, there's no Q, I think, in it, but there's, I can't remember the order of it, if it's Midwest LGBT Books to Prisoners, or the other way around. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's that specific one. It's, yeah. Yeah, and we do have LIS students listening, so if you do have questions and would like us to follow up, I mean, just, just DM us or send us an email or something. I'm happy to, to help you find other librarians who care about the shit that you care about. If you're feeling a little isolated at library school, which I know sometimes you can. So thanks so much, Jeannie. This has been amazing. I really want to keep doing more episodes with you. When's your book coming out, by the way? And what is your book? So people know. Okay. It's called, (laughs) let me look it up. It's called library services and incarceration, recognizing barriers, increasing access. It's the subtitle, I believe of the entire textbook I wrote. It's a textbook. So get ready for that if you're trying to buy it. And it's being published by, to return to this, American Library Association. I think due to a phrase we use now, delays in the global supply chain, it may not come out this month, but it's it's on its way to be out in the world. Awesome. ALA doing something good. Who you knew? can call a number to, or, you can call an 800 number to order the item, by the way, you can't order it online, but you can call an 800 number, just so you know. <laughs> they just call you I'm an idiot looking, and hang yeah. up. 
Yeah, you can call <laughs> you can call the 800 number and they're just like fuck you. Fuck off, you idiot. <laughs> Why did you think this would work? Go listen to Dumb a podcast. Asshole. It's just the Chicago wind. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Michigan. It's just like go jump into the lake. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anything else um, before we let you go? No, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was yeah. wonderful. Thank I you for being here. All right. Good night.